do you do what you do for Christ because you feel you have to or because you want to? Let's ask that again. Do you do what you do for Christ because you feel you have to or because you want to? Now, some might suggest it doesn't matter as long as you do it, but it does matter. If you do what you do because you have to, for all practical purposes, you are still living under the old covenant. But Paul made it clear last week that he was a servant of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the spirit. For the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. Ray Steadman illustrated this difference in a book entitled Authentic Christianity when he told the story of a boy who had decided one Saturday morning that it was time he showed his dad how much he loved him in a very practical way. He decided that he would mow the grass and wash the car just because he wanted to, because of all his dad had done for him. He got excited about it and dashed down to breakfast, anxious to get started. Just before he left the table, however, his dad said, son, I want you to wash the car today and mow the grass. And I expect it to be done before I get home. I don't want to come home and find you haven't done it. Well, he did it. But the picture had changed entirely. Now he had to do it. The law had been given. And the law killed his joy. He wasn't free to just do it out of love any longer. He had to do it. That's one of the major differences between the old and the new covenant, between law and grace. And Paul's going to contrast them further in our passage for consideration this morning. But before we go any further, we do need to understand that we don't have to be Jewish to be living under the old covenant. Many Christians are living more under law than grace. We need to keep that in mind as we study through what Paul has to say. He begins by pointing out that the glory of the new covenant surpasses the glory of the old. We're in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, ready for verse 7. But if the ministry of death in letters engraved on stones came with glory so that the sons of Israel could not look intently at the face of Moses because of the glory of his face fading as it was, how shall the ministry of the Spirit fail to be even more with glory? For if the ministry of condemnation has glory... Much more does the ministry of righteousness abound in glory. For indeed, what had glory in this case has no glory on account of the glory that surpasses it. For if that which fades away was with glory, much more that which remains is in glory. Now, there's no doubt that the old covenant represented by the law engraved on stone tablets, had glory. And it was given in a glorious fashion. 
After telling the people of God that God would come down on Mount Sinai in three days. And to make themselves ready, Moses told them that God would appear to them in a thick cloud. When it happened, they were overwhelmed, and rightfully so. So it came about on the third day, when it was morning, that there were thunder and lightning flashes and a thick cloud upon the mountain and a very loud trumpet sound so that all the people who were in the camp trembled. And Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God. And they stood at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was all in smoke because the Lord descended upon it in fire and its smoke ascended like the smoke of a furnace and the whole mountain quaked violently. When the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke and God answered him with thunder. And the Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain and Moses went up. After then verbally giving the law to Moses on the mountaintop, Moses went down the mountain and shared it with the people. But then God told him to return to the mountaintop for another meeting and to receive stone tablets on which he would personally write the law. Then Moses went up to the mountain again, and the cloud covered the mountain. And the glory of the Lord rested on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it for six days. And on the seventh day, he called to Moses from the midst of the cloud and to the eyes of the sons of Israel. The appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a consuming fire on the mountaintop. And Moses entered the midst of the cloud as he went up to the mountain. And Moses was on the mountain 40 days. And 40 nights. Then, after returning to the mountaintop once again to get a second copy of the law, after throwing down and shattering the first tablets, after witnessing the sins of the people around the golden calf, when Moses came down, the skin of his face shone. It glowed supernaturally. So much so that Aaron and the others fled from him. They were afraid to look at him. They couldn't look into his face because in it they saw the glory of God's presence and the glory of the law. And there was indeed a glory about the law. God had personally visited Moses and given to him the law for his people. It was a glorious day for mankind. God's will had been made known gloriously. But Paul says something better has come. And just as the brightest light of the night is dimmed by the morning sun, so that which had glory no longer has glory because of the glory that surpasses it. The reason the glory of the old covenant was surpassed was because it was a ministry of death. It could not give life. Only the Spirit can give life. The law kills. 
The law makes evident our failures and shows us what we cannot accomplish. It makes us long for life, but it cannot provide it. In fact, Paul refers to it as a ministry of condemnation. It condemns us by holding up the unachievable and commanding that we achieve it. And actually, that's what the law was intended to do. Its ultimate purpose was to make us see how desperately we needed grace. Paul makes that very clear in Romans. The law makes us see how sinful we are and how deserving we are of death. The new covenant, however, is a ministry of righteousness. It's a covenant whereby a man is made right with God through the righteousness of another. No longer does a man have to strive to meet an unattainable level of personal righteousness. Instead, by confessing that he can't do it, he accepts the gift of being made righteous through the righteousness of another. That is grace. That is the new covenant. That is what we have in Christ. The sad fact, however, is that many Christians still feel condemned all the time. They're constantly striving to make themselves acceptable to a perfect and absolutely holy God, but they can't. And they go to bed every night feeling like a failure, wishing they had tried just a little harder. That's the ministry of condemnation, of comparing yourself to letters of law engraved on stone. That is the old covenant, not the new covenant that's based on grace. Grace allows me to thank God for loving me in spite of the fact that I will never measure up, at least not in this life. Grace teaches me that it's the presence of Christ in my life that makes me acceptable in the sight of God. Grace makes it clear that I don't have to do things to earn God's favor. Now, there is a glory in doing things for God, but it's a fading glory. If we do something for God that we think is significant, we do feel good about it. We can almost sense him smiling at us, patting us on the back, telling us how pleased he is with us. But that glory fades with time. And if we don't renew it by doing something else, we begin thinking we're not doing enough to keep him happy. The new covenant, however, has a glory that never fades. Because it is the glory of Christ within us. That glory of Christ within us, however, will not be seen if we put the spotlight on ourselves. It's only when we stop trying to impress God and others with our righteousness that the glory of Christ will be seen in our life. That is new covenant living. The Jews of the Old Testament didn't have it, and sad to say, some Christians still don't. That's why we need to make sure 
that along with Paul, we are preaching new glory, not old. Having therefore such hope, we use great boldness in our speech and are not as Moses, who used to put a veil over his face that the sons of Israel might not look intently at the end of what was fading away. But their minds were hardened. For until this very day, at the reading of the Old Covenant, the same veil remains unlifted because it is removed in Christ. But to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their heart. Whenever a man turns to the Lord, veil is taken away. Now Moses, as we've already seen, literally glowed when he stood before the people after coming down the mountain. He had been with God. But just like the fading glory of the covenant he had received, the glory on his face began to fade. And Paul tells us that was the reason he put a veil over his face. It wasn't because of COVID. He was trying to hide the fact that his glory was fading, as would the glory of the covenant he represented. Now, in contrast to that, Paul makes it clear that ministers of the new covenant have nothing to hide. They don't need a veil. They can stand before people and speak with great boldness, unveiled. They don't have to worry about a fading glory because the glory they have is the unfading glory of Christ. And unlike Moses, ministers of the new covenant don't have a glory that sets them apart from everyone else. The glory they have is the glory that is available to all who will receive it. It's the glory of Christ himself. That means ministers of the new covenant have nothing to hide because they don't have to appear to be something they're not. They don't have to project a personal glory they feel their position requires. And that means they don't have to hide personal failings or veil a fading glory they've created for themselves. The glory they have isn't something they've created or earned. It's a glory that was given to them and can be seen if they will just get the veil of their own glory out of the way. Now, that's not easy to do. It's not easy to get the veils of our own glory out of the way so we can openly reflect the glory of Christ. And that's especially hard for preachers. Preachers are not held in the esteem they once had in our society, but they still have to be careful not to let the glory of their profession veil the glory of Christ. And as Eugene Peterson noted, when writing about the temptation of exalting oneself in ministry, pastors have the temptation compounded because we have a constituency with which to act godlike. Unlike other temptations, this one easily escapes detection, passing itself off 
as a virtue. But then again, preachers aren't the only ones who veil the glory of Christ by their personal glory. Anyone, anyone who hides their shortcomings in order to make themselves look like a good Christian veils the glory of Christ. Christ knows all about our sin and failure and loves us anyway. And the glory of Christ can best be seen in the lives of believers who don't hide the fact that they haven't arrived, but are yet being transformed into the image of his glory. Now the Lord is the Spirit. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. But we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord, the Spirit. The law holds us in bondage to condemnation and death. But in Christ, we are set free to really live. We are set free to let Christ live his life through us. And as we stand before him unveiled, stripped of pretense and hypocrisy, recognizing our need of him and beholding his glory, we are transformed into his image. Paul says we are transformed from glory to glory. Some take that to mean we get more glorious all the time. The NIV translates it with ever-increasing glory and the RSV from one degree of glory to another. Others hold that the first glory refers to the source from glory and the second glory to glory is the result. That Paul is saying it is from Jesus' glory that we derive our glory. Both, I think, are true. It's from looking to Christ that we derive real glory. And the more we look to him, the more glorious we become. Because the more we behold his glory, the more his glory is reflected in our lives. That makes us look good, even to God. And we can therefore confidently come before him, confident that he is pleased with us, not because we did something to earn his good pleasure, but because when he sees us, he sees his own dear son. That's the glory we reflect. And that is the glory that brings more glory to his name. When we live our lives with unveiled face, free of all pretense and botched attempts to make ourselves look good, we look good to our Heavenly Father. And we look good to others because they seek Christ. If you want to bring glory to his name, 
Let him transform you into his image. Look to him and enter into a covenant with him that will free you and enable you to live a life that truly does bring glory to his name. Let's pray. Father, you are indeed glorious. And we have records of that glory being witnessed by people. We see that glory today even in creation. We see your glory all around us. And there are times when we just don't feel that we're worthy to come into your presence. And so sometimes we try hard. We try to hide even from you. We try to give the impression that we are glorious too. But Lord, we're not. We're not glorious. We're sinful. The only way we can be viewed as glorious is by allowing your glory to enter in us. And you do that through the presence of your spirit and Christ living in our hearts. Help us appreciate what we have in you. Help us to live life in fullness without hiding and pretending and acting more holy than our neighbor. Just let us be a reflection of your glory. That, Father, is my prayer in Jesus' name. That's how we give glory.